we have the opportunity to retain one of the most pristine places left on Earth. I call it the retention of the beating heart of the Mojave. At some point, the Mojave Desert was experiencing death by a thousand cuts, and that really doubled my determination to work on this legislation because we want to make sure that we can keep one of the most pristine areas in the world intact, and we retain the fact that you can go out there and experience that quiet, see wildlife that has been using corridors that have existed for time immemorial. I mean, there's really so many good reasons. Good morning, I'm Tommy Helm, and welcome to another edition of Tree Huggers International from the studios of KBZT, FM 94.9 in San Diego. Tree Huggers International is a weekly natural science and environmental affairs program dedicated to the preservation of parks, wilderness, and special places. From the beaches, to the mountains, to the deserts. This is Tree Huggers International. Be careful. And use this show with caution. Because you might just learn something. Introduced in late 2009 by California Senator Dianne Feinstein, the California Desert Protection Act is one of the largest land conservation measures ever undertaken in the U.S. The legislation calls for the creation of two new national monuments in the Mojave Desert. The Sand to Snow National Monument, rising from the western end of Joshua Tree National Park into the forested high country of the San Bernardino Mountains, and also the Mojave Trails National Monument, which would protect wild and historic locales along both sides of historic Route 66 through the Mojave, along with a sizable chunk of the Mojave Desert west of the Mojave National Preserve, and another sizable area of desert west of the Arizona State Line near Needles. The Desert Protection Act also calls for the creation of several new wilderness areas of various sizes and several proposed wild and scenic river designations. Well, joining us today on the program to talk all about the California Desert Protection Act is David Lamfram. David is the California Desert Program Manager with the National Parks Conservation Association's office in Barstow, and he's also the co-author of the book Tortoises Through the Lens, a visual exploration of a Mojave desert icon. David has spent the last two years working on the California Desert Protection Act. Plus, in the little spare time he allots himself, he works as a community organizer, particularly with teens, and he's the president of the Mojave National Preserve Conservancy. Trained as a biologist, David is originally from Florida, where he worked as a wildlife biologist for an engineering firm before coming to the California desert and finding his calling. He's come all the way here from Barstow today to be with us. David Lamfram, welcome to Tree Huggers International. It's very nice to have you here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. You know, a lot of people tuning in today may recall the 1994 California Desert Protection Act. And one of the best books I've ever read about conservation movements is Frank Wheat's California's Desert Miracle, about the contentious process of creating, among other areas, the Mojave National Preserve, and also elevating a Joshua Tree and Death Valley to national park status. But how does the 1994 Desert Protection Act compare with what we're seeing today? Are these simply areas which were missed or negotiated out of the 1994 bill? The original CDPA, the California Desert Protection Act, the Act of 1994, really was an excellent bill in that it was able to protect large-scale areas of the California desert. What we're looking at today is finishing the business of that bill. We're looking at areas that were wilderness study areas. We're looking at areas that were spoken for 
through the Catalyst purchases that are now being looked at for renewable energy development. So in a lot of ways, this is the natural completion of that act. And what were the Catellas purchases? The Catellas purchases were lands that were purchased from the real estate arm of the railroad companies. The Wildlands Conservancy, which is a nonprofit organization, came up with $45 million and $18 million of land and water conservation funds from the federal government were used to purchase 630,000 acres of private land, which was then donated in good faith to the federal government. That land was given to Mojave National Preserve. It was given to the BLM, intended specifically for conservation. Let's talk about the specifics of the two national monuments proposed in the legislation. There's the Sand to Snow National Monument, and then there's the Mojave Trails National Monument. What kind of work were you doing on the proposals? Because you spent two years working on this, and what areas are we talking about? What areas would they cover? The Mojave Trails is is a 941,000-acre monument, encompassing some of those really beautiful mountains like the Marble Mountains and the Trilobite Mountains. That is the the longest uninterrupted part of Route 66 that still remains. If you follow that corridor, it's basically everything that's between Mojave National Preserve coming down to 29 Palms Military Base to the west of it, and it stretches down to uh, a bunch of wilderness areas that actually connect it to Joshua Tree National Park. And in terms of honoring not just uh, wilderness corridors, but migration routes, Native American history, and Western American history. This is a really critical connection because what you're doing is you're saving the essential heart of the Mojave Desert. You're connecting Mojave National Preserve with Joshua Tree National Park. What are some of the real stunning natural things that you can find in there? What makes those mountain ranges special? When you get into the Mojave Trails, you get into this area where you get this basin and range where there's just, there'll be mountains and then valleys and mountains and valleys and As you go up in elevation, you find that actually every one of those mountain ranges is completely different. So some of them are beautiful and alabaster white, and some of them are incredibly volcanic. Within the monument will be the Amboy Crater. Amboy Crater is is one of the youngest volcanic areas in the state of California, and really just a remarkably beautiful place, and probably one one of the finest places to see wildlife in the California desert. What kind of wildlife, like bighorn sheep? Well, in the crater itself, you find a lot of different types of, I mean, not only do you get, I mean, you get ridiculous blooms, first of all. When I was out there just recently and I sat down and I had my lunch in a field of gold, literally as far as I could see in every direction was just solid desert gold contrasted with the black volcanic rocks. And it's just really, really beautiful. But, you know, you're seeing desert iguanas and you're seeing chuckwallas and you're seeing desert tortoises out there and you're seeing small mammals and jackrabbits. It's really, really beautiful area. And another place in that in the monument is the Trilobite Wilderness. And it's actually a place where people are going and you can see embedded in the rock trilobites, you know, animals that have not been alive for 550 million years. And you also get the biggest cactus garden in California, the Bigelow Choya Cactus Garden. You know, you can actually see that as you're driving down the I-40 heading towards Needles. You come up over a rise and you see huge expanses of choya cactus, you know, some of them five, six feet tall, really stunning area. So the diversity within this monument, it's really spectacular. Is it safe to say the areas in this uh, monument proposal are threatened or are they in a situation where they just need that additional bit of protection to ensure that nothing happens to it? Not all of the areas that I've discussed are necessarily threatened. There are a lot of solar applications along Route 66, so 
for many reasons, for the protection of the route and our history and the protection of the connections between all of these areas. There's a distinction between pristine desert and disturbed desert. And, you know, our coalition, our belief is that there's plenty of disturbed desert out there. It doesn't make sense for us to jeopardize our ecotourism dollars. It doesn't make sense for us to jeopardize some of the most magnificently beautiful places in our country. See, that's my feeling. It's out of, why don't they just put solar uh, panels on top of every single warehouse in the uh, Inland Empire, or in Southern California for that matter? I mean, there, are, there is so much room to go and put solar farms, and you can do that in urban areas already where you don't have to build transmission lines. So the whole idea that what the sun is somehow better in these areas that uh, are truly wilderness, I don't think that holds any water. It's interesting. There's definitely room for diverse generation methods. We can certainly put them on tops of homes, but the BLM is currently studying 351,000 acres of more disturbed land just in the California desert. So this is just land that would be more appropriate for solar development, areas that would be closer to communities, that would bring jobs to communities, especially in Riverside and San Bernardino counties, counties that have unemployment rates that are nearing 20%. These areas that they've identified are already close to existing transmission, so you wouldn't have to build brand new lines. In many of these areas, it's going to be a lot less contentious. You're not going to have these projects being tied up in court because you're concerned about sensitive species. So it's really a win-win. We retain our incredible natural legacy, start producing renewable energy, and we bring jobs to communities. I mean, in my mind, that makes perfect sense. Just as far as the Mojave National Trail's proposed national monument is concerned, how much time did you spend there identifying some of these areas? How much time did the coalition spend going out on field trips and really identifying these different uh, portions and components of it? Within our coalition, there are a lot of experts, and the Wildlands Conservancy was one of the key players in the California Wilderness Coalition. Also, we've field-checked so many of these areas, and I would say additionally, I spend a lot of time recreating in that area. As a wildlife photographer, I go to Amboy Crater monthly in the spring because it's probably one of the best places to do wildlife photography within 100 miles of Barstow. You know, a lot of us spend time personally in those areas, but through our coalition, we ground-checked all the areas that are in this legislation. Spend a lot of time pulling needles out of your socks, I'll bet. Yeah, you know, when you're in the uh, the lower elevations of the Mojave Desert, it's uh, very difficult to do tree-hugging. because. <laughs> The, the, it's cactus hugging. Yeah, the trees are so <laughs> sharp and spiny that it's not advantageous. Mesquite is not really that huggable. If you're really hungry, you know. <laughs> you can eat it. Oh, yeah, or you're really thirsty, then it's kind of huggable, although you wouldn't want to hug it. But Well, let's change gears here, and let's talk about the Santa Snow National Monument. Now, this is an interesting national monument because it encompasses so many different ecosystems you find in these different elevations. I mean, it starts in Joshua Tree National Park and backs all the way up into the high elevations of the San Bernardino Mountains. Is that unusual for a national monument to encompass such an array of different climates? It's odd to find places in the world that have that type of diversity. People talk about these areas differently, but I would call the Mojave Trails the beating heart of the Mojave Desert, and I would call the sand to snow the living ceiling of the Mojave Desert. It's, you know, incredible. If you would contrast the two areas, Although the sand to snow is much smaller at 134,000 acres, you have so many river systems coming down, you know, especially the... The whitewater. Yeah, especially the whitewater. Not only do you get the diversity that comes with the elevation, but then you also get the diversity that comes with the riparian areas. And so you kind of are mixing this incredible concoction here. 
and it's really an ecological laboratory. How many places can you think of that you could see a desert tortoise and a black bear in the same day? That's such a rare and diverse area. Are there trail systems already in these uh, proposed national monuments? Yeah, there's actually a, a part of the Pacific Crest Trail that goes through the sand to snow. I know that there's a lot of interest from the Inland Empire to not only have trails that go from the sand to snow to the Pacific Ocean, but also into Joshua Tree National Park. So we think that there's a lot of opportunity. I can't think of another place, certainly in California, where you have two national monuments within such close proximity and actual linkages between them. So you're talking about linking these mountain ranges with Joshua Tree National Park, also with national monuments. And then you're looking even farther north through wilderness areas, the connection to Mojave Trails National Monument and then the direct connection to Mojave National Preserve. You know, you talk about the landscape level conservation and you're looking not just at the political boundaries of areas that are protected, but you're looking at what's actually getting used. You talk about Bighorn and the migration of Bighorn. The Bighorn isn't going to know where the political boundary ends. It's going to need to go down where it can get water. It's going to need to follow the seasonal migration routes they have followed ever since they've been here. You know, looking at conservation in that way, I think, makes a lot of sense because you're honoring the ecology, but also it makes really good economic sense. I've traveled throughout our great country, and there are very few places with the open spaces, with the vistas, with the wildlife that you find in the California desert. That's something that we have that doesn't exist in other places. As those areas become more rare, it's going to become more and more valuable. It's simply supply and demand. Talk to me a little bit about the collaborative effort going on behind the scenes. I mean, which groups were involved in these coalitions and what kind of a coalition was built? Did you have a lot of uh, strange bedfellows? We have a strange bed. (laughs) (laughs) There are a number of folks that have been working together. National Parks Conservation Association, the California Wilderness Coalition, the Wildlands Conservancy, Wilderness Society, Friends of the River. I've worked with the Off-Road Business Association and I've worked with the American Motorcycle Association, District 33. And we work really well together. And I think that it's because we all recognize what's at stake here. There's the potential to not only conserve these areas, but it's been a very grassroots effort. Our coalition has actually briefed every council member in every city affected by this legislation. You know, we are working with local groups, with the off-road community. We're working with all of the players that we've identified. It's not about getting something or winning something. It's about having everybody come together to recognize what incredible resources we have and to make sure that everybody feels like they're a part of those and can enjoy them. I think it's a testimony not only to Senator Feinstein, but to all the groups involved. I think that we have so many different groups with what you would think would be different interests. But when you peel back that initial layer, you see that there's a common ground. And that common ground is so many folks care deeply about the desert. And It's really a function of experience. The more people take time to experience and understand the desert, they come to love it. Therein lies an incredible opportunity. We have all this public land, all this protected land, so close to these urban centers. If you're listening to this in your car or if you're jogging right now and you're listening to the ambient noise around you and you think, sometimes I just really would love for it to be quiet, you know that you can go out to the desert and you can have profound and deafening quiet. You can literally go to places where, in every direction around you, you will see just nature.
If you're just joining us, this is Tree Huggers International, broadcast from the studios of KBZT, FM 94.9 in San Diego. I'm Tommy Howe, and we're joined in the studio today by wildlife biologist and community organizer David Lamprum. David is the California Desert Program Manager with the National Parks Conservation Association's Desert Office in Barstow, and he's the co-author of the book Tortoises Through the Lens, a visual exploration of a Mojave desert icon. David is also the president of the Mojave National Preserve Conservancy. David spent the last two years working on the California Desert Protection Act, and you can learn more about the California Desert Protection Act at the National Parks Conservation Association's website at www.npca.org. That's npca.org. You can also contact the NPCA's California Desert Field offices in Joshua Tree at area code 760-366-7785 and in Barstow at 760-957-7887. And I'll go over those phone numbers again at the end of the program. David, you work a lot with kids in Barstow to try and instill in them a love for the outdoors gained from seeing and appreciating the desert on foot at a slower pace. You're really helping kids realize the benefit and connect with uh, solace and silence. When I was growing up, I, I lived in a very urban area. And I was lucky because it, South Florida has uh, just a wealth of canal systems. And, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't recognize that that was actually from the drainage of the Everglades. But what I would see in my backyard when I was a kid, you know, my mom would say, David, get out of the house and I don't want you to come back until it's dark. So I would spend all day outside and and literally I'd be able to see alligators and water snakes and turtles. And after a while, you'd get to see different things happen. You know, there'd be a certain time of year when there would be baby animals, there'd be tadpoles or there'd be baby catfish or, you know, the different animals were doing different things. And it really, I think, got me interested in in the outdoors, even though I lived in an extremely urban setting. And when I moved to California and into the California desert, I recognized that although these kids were surrounded on all sides by desert, it didn't mean that they necessarily had access. And access is not just being able to walk out into the desert, but knowing why you should and knowing what you should be looking for and thinking that it's safe and okay to do so. Those are all ideas that I wanted to help students come to. And NPCA has empowered me to do some really really powerful things. You know, we got to take 40 kids from Barstow to Death Valley to do stargazing. And those kids got to camp for the very first time and to experience the night sky really for the first time. And we were led by a ranger from Death Valley named Charlie Callaghan, who's been at Death Valley for an extremely long time. We were not allowed to have flashlights. And we went out, we, we got our night eyes, we hiked out, and we just listened. And we heard coyotes howling and we heard owls hooting and the kids were captivated after we sat there in quiet for you know 10 or 15 minutes charlie told us a story about how a a kit fox stole his shoes in a dune system and the kids loved it and you know i think that facilitating those types of experiences for kids i don't think people have an aversion to the outdoors i think that we live in a a time and place where we don't necessarily have the same exposure that our parents had or that our grandparents had. And I think that we have to rebuild those connections. And I don't think that it's difficult. I think that once you get the kids out there, their natural curiosity takes over. And I think there's a, a natural inclination 
for humans to enjoy being outdoors and to enjoy spending time in, in wilderness areas and national parks. And there's a benefit to seeing and enjoying the outdoors without the aid of an internal combustion engine. Your heart rate goes down. You hear things you wouldn't ordinarily hear. You use your feet, and all of a sudden you have a sense of purpose, a sense of accomplishment. And that's all very, very important for children and for kids, especially for teenagers. I really think there's something to be said for the confidence that you can build from doing a really tough hike. And I think it's really good, you know, just as a society, we're just a lot more sedentary than we used to be. And also the ability to use your own facilities to guide you along a trail and to notice those more subtle things, the beautiful Desert Five spot or the collared lizard that might be along the trail or the really, really beautiful agate rock that you might see along that trail. Whichever way people have their first exposure to the outdoors, I think that can be a stool for them to stand on to see what I think is the bigger picture, which is that there are these lands that are protected in perpetuity for their benefit that belong to them and that they can access them and they can access them in many cases for free and forever. I think that it's, you know, an incredible opportunity. You go to Disneyland and you'd have to pay 50 bucks to get in, but you can go in the desert and you can camp and you can bring your own food and you can do it really inexpensively. I think it's a great activity for families. In regards to the actual legislation for the California Desert Protection Act, which is now before Congress, I've heard it described as about as perfect as it's going to get because there was something in it for everyone to disagree on. (laughs) I don't know if that's a very half-empty way to look at it, but would you say that's accurate? Would you say that all the parties involved really had to give quite a bit, maybe more than they expected? I would say that's completely accurate. And I would say that there's not anybody who's at the table who hasn't had to sacrifice something. There's a, a power in that. There's a power in the fact that everybody was willing to give a little to get something that was ultimately a a product everybody can live with. That's a very democratic process, and I'm very supportive of that. Are there any specifics in the bill to protect desert tortoise habitat? There are no desert tortoise wildlife areas, but a great majority of the lands that are being posed for conservation are incredible desert tortoise habitat. In fact, the last trip that I took to Amboy Crater, we actually saw a desert tortoise trying to cross Route 66. Oh, boy. Right near Amboy Road. That whole area is really, really excellent desert tortoise habitat. And the fact that these monuments encompass elevation as well, it means that many species that may be affected by climate change will be able to have the vertical relief to be able to potentially migrate up. The term that I would use for that is ecological resilience, meaning that if it becomes too hot or too dry at the lowest elevations, there at least would be some type of reprieve for for plants and for animals. When was the Mojave National Preserve Conservancy created, and what was the motivation behind it? I mean, because you got here a couple of years ago, but of course the preserve has been around since 1994. There was no conservancy before then? No, the, the conservancy is a relatively new group. We've been around for about a year now. It's a friends group, an advocacy-based friends group for the Mojave National Preserve. Our mission is to protect the resources of Mojave National Preserve and also to connect the communities with the preserve as well. People are pushing to be involved and to work to protect this place. And I think that that's a testimony to the bonds that folks have built with the preserve. And and rightly so, the Mojave National Preserve is, without question, one of the most beautiful places in the United States. What's your favorite area, the Kelso Dunes? I like the Kelso Dunes very much, but I would say 
Clark Mountain is one of my favorite areas. Clark Mountain is on the north side of I-15. It's about a 30,000 acre parcel that's separate from the preserve, just under 8,000 feet. And when you get up into that Clark Mountain wilderness area, it's the most expansive pinyon juniper forest that I've seen in the Mojave Desert. So you're looking around you in every direction, you're just seeing these tall trees and there's old historic turquoise mines up there. And at the very top, there's this huge arch and you can see it when you're in the parcel. But then also there's a relict population of white fir, which is a tree species that was more dominant during the Ice Age. The last relics of trees that you would see when you're in the San Bernardino Mountains in the heart of the Mojave Desert at the very top, kind of like the hair on top of the head of Clark Mountain. It's quite the sky island. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. And there are other sky islands in Mojave National Preserve too. The New York Mountains are 7,900 feet as well. And you have a bunch of ranges over 6,000 feet in the Mojave National Preserve. So you really can visit the preserve throughout the year because you can get up into those higher elevations and really and do some really nice hiking, even if it's a, a buck 15 down below. We're just now starting to think about large-scale renewable energy and how we want to implement that. We understand that there's such a need to develop renewable energy, but in our haste, we shouldn't throw out the best of what we have. We need to do it in a balanced way. We need to find the right way to honor what we have while moving forward with what we need. That's what this legislation does. It makes sure that we retain our history, our legacy, our incredible wild places, and also helps us to find the right places to site renewable energy. And I think what folks are going to get out of this is that even though we need to have renewable energy, we also need to have beautiful places conserved. And those are both things that we need to be balanced. What's a good day for you in the desert? Actually getting up really early, catching the sunrise as I'm driving out, on lonely desert roads, getting to a place that is so beautiful that I'm forced to pull my car over and get out of the vehicle. And I take my camera out, I walk, and I'm looking at so many different plants and animals. I lose track of time and I, I lose track of the things that I have due on Wednesday and all the stress of city life and all the stress of just being a person melts away. When I allow myself to, that's a very easy place to get to in, in the Mojave Desert. What's something that uh, continues to surprise you about the desert? The power of the weather. On three days, one day can be 95, the next day can be 42, and the next day can be 40 mile an hour winds. So something to keep in mind when you're out in the Mojave Desert is always be prepared with extra water, with extra layers of clothes, with extra food, just because it is a desert and it is incredibly harsh and that is part of the, the charm and beauty of it. Another thing that's really surprising to me is how much life there is and how many species there are. There's In Mojave National Preserve there's something like 1,100 species of plants and this is a place that gets very hot and very cold and I just think that's so remarkable. I'd like to invite everybody to come out and see the Mojave Desert 
these areas that are being discussed, these proposals for conservation, I would encourage everybody to come out and to see these areas and to see why we're working as hard as we are and why we're fighting for these areas. And I think that if you do take the time, you know, you'll feel the same way. Can folks contact your office for advice on these places? Yeah, folks should feel free to give us a call. Another great place to get information about these areas would be californiadesert.org, which is our coalition website. And we have fact sheets on all the areas that are being conserved. We have actual PDF copies of the legislation. So if you're interested in reading more or doing some research about the bill itself, you know, you can read the bill yourself and make up your mind about it. And I encourage everybody to do that. I'd say visit that website. And, and if you have further questions, to feel free to contact us. CaliforniaDesert.org. That's it. CaliforniaDesert.org. You can also go to uh, the National Parks Conservation Association's website. That's npca.org. And one more time, the uh, number for the office in Joshua Tree, that's 760-366-7785. And the number for the NPCA in Barstow is 760-957-7887. David Lamprum from the National Parks Conservation Association's California Desert Field Office in Barstow. Really appreciate you coming by. Appreciate the work that you're doing on the California Desert Protection Act. You have a safe drive back, buddy, and uh, we'll see you next time, hopefully somewhere in the desert. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. That's going to wrap things up for this week's edition of Tree Huggers International from the studios of KBZT, FM 94.9 in San Diego. Again, I'm Tommy Howe, and thanks once again to wildlife biologist and community organizer David Lamfram from the National Parks Conservation Association's California Desert Field Office in Barstow, For more information on the California Desert Protection Act, which is currently before Congress, go to the National Parks Conservation Association's website at www.npca.org. That's npca.org. If you'd like more information on volunteering with the National Parks Conservation Association or learning more about how you can help ensure the passage of the California Desert Protection Act, you're welcome to reach out to the California Desert Field Offices of the NPCA, They have two locations, in Joshua Tree at 760-366-7785. That's 760-366-7785. And in Barstow at 760-957-7887. That's 760-957-7887. And don't forget, David is also the president of the Mojave National Preserve Conservancy. And I would urge you to check out their website, too, preservethemojave.org. That's www.preservethemojave.org. The opinions and views expressed on Tree Huggers International do not necessarily reflect the opinions and views of the staff and management of FM 94.9 or Lincoln Financial Media, And as producer, I am solely responsible for this program's content. Questions, complaints, concerns, compliments, you can go ahead and email me at tommy at fm949sd.com. For more information on Tree Huggers International and to hear previous editions of the show, go to the Tree Huggers International page at treehuggersintl.com. That's www.treehuggersintl.com treehuggersintl.com and you can also access the Tree Huggers International page from the FM 94.9 website 
at www.fm949sd.com. This is Tommy Howe for Tree Huggers International from the studios of FM 94.9 in San Diego. We'll be back same time next Sunday morning with another take on natural science and environmental affairs as we continue our mission to preserve parks, wilderness, and special places on Tree Huggers International. Thanks for making us a part of your Sunday morning. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And be well.